Happy Remembrance slash Veterans Day, everybody, and thanks for activating the 90th edition of Scoring at the Movies. We've been reviewing sports films since June 2018, and we've been spoiling them exactly that long, too. I'm the guy who wears track pants and sneakers with suit jackets and ties, and who likes to drink, although not an entire case of beer in one sitting. Ryan Ellis. And here's the man who's been shamed by a religious man into trying to stop fucking swearing, but man, is he fucking failing. Christa fucking digger. <laughs> Christy Gregorio. <laughs> I should start going by that. That's pretty good. Well, thank you, Ryan. I would have been here sooner for the recording tonight, but unfortunately, Sam and Tilly found out I was spreading my affection amongst both of them. And as punishment, they made me run some wind sprints for a while before I was allowed to come up and record. So I'm a little bit out of it now, but uh, I'm going to give it my best shot. It was only the third quarter. Hey, wait, it's overtime now. <laughs> yeah, well, look, we're going to overtime. This movie has a lot in common with Hoosiers. Right down to having a team chaplain. True, but little... their team is smaller, so they have to be better athletes than everybody else. And as he says in Hoosiers, Gene Hackman does, no team of mine's going to be out-hustled or whatever it was. An athlete might as well say the same thing in this movie. He almost does, verbatim. Mm-hmm. I can't remember how many times he swears, but he says, I don't care if we win or lose, but I'll be damned if we're going to get out-gutsed or out-hustled probably, something or like something that. Like Out-tough, maybe, yeah. This might be a rare instance when I outrate you on a movie. I was really impressed with this movie mm-hmm. in a lot of different ways. Your first time seeing it. First time seeing it. There was a lot of small things that this movie did very well. And the first time I thought, uh, I'm going to get you a movie like I caught you was after that huddle when Affleck reads the ride act to the team about not being tough enough, not giving enough effort. He says, when number 21 goes up for a dunk or something, I want you to hit him so hard he doesn't know if he's going to be able to get up again or something mm-hmm. like that. And so that's what happens, right? One of the players fouls the ever-loving snot out of this showboating player on the opposition. You can see Ben Affleck going, yes, that's the stuff. And I'm like, that's a flagrant foul. There's no way that would fly in any basketball game. Sure enough, the movie immediately calls a flagrant foul on it. I'm like, oh, good. This is a movie that actually knows a little bit about the sport it's portraying, unlike so many of the movies we've covered that just couldn't even get the bare basics right. And it was oddly refreshing just to see that little bit of accuracy, even if it's down to the calls being made. We've seen some incompetent sports movies, that's for sure. And I'm thinking of another movie that maybe this was homaging in addition to Hoosiers. In the scene you're talking about, the Mighty Ducks, when Estevez realizes his team can't win with talent, play dirty. Charlie, when you're in the corner like that, grab at your eye. And when Charlie does that, he's embarrassed. You can see this, what, 10-year-old kid is embarrassed. This 30-year-old coach is asking him to do these stupid things. Yeah. And the team in this movie aren't embarrassed, but it reminded me of that one part of the Mighty Ducks. Yeah, that is the dirtiest we ever see them play. After that... That never happens again. Right, they play hard... It reminded me a little bit of the Detroit Pistons of the late 80s, mm. right? Not to the extreme that that team went necessarily, but it also reminded me, frankly, of the Raptors now and in recent years. We're going to out-hustle you, we're going to outwork you because we're not going to be the biggest team or the most talented team, but we're going to scrape by and find ways to win. As a first-time watcher of a movie that, frankly, had no fanfare at all, came, mm. I think, straight to streaming, right? No. Before we get into the details, we haven't opened our beers yet. We're oh, a few yeah. minutes since. Let's do that. Actually, I just have a can of pop tonight. I'm taking a break for once. <laughs> yeah. Actually, in homage to this movie, maybe I'm not going to drink. Because was... maybe he eventually, well, obviously does, eventually stop drinking at the end of the movie because he would have died if he didn't stop. 
Yeah, I felt a little bit weird actually grabbing a drink to have while talking about a movie that centers around Ben Affleck's character's alcoholism, but... Mm. Frankly, at this point, I pretty much have a Pavlovian response to recording a podcast, or if I don't <laughs> have, have some kind of beer in my hand, it feels odd. So, so what is that beer? This is my go-to basketball movie beer. I've had this every time. Jam, Jam up the mash. Jam up the mash. Right. And it's been a while since we've done a basketball movie. I believe the last one was in March when we did Glory Road, leading into the, well, was it the final four this year? It must have been, right? They did the final four this year. They didn't last they year. They did, yeah. Right. Okay, you mentioned about when this movie came out. It was last March, so 2020 March. And it beat the pandemic shutdown by two weeks. So it got two weeks in the theaters. Oh, it did? In a normal year, this movie's box office wouldn't make it any kind of hit. But the pandemic just ravaged Hollywood. So this had those couple weeks on the big screen. And that meant it ranked 24th in the whole year, even though it only made a couple of million dollars, basically. So it wouldn't have been a hit last year had it been a normal year, but it wouldn't have been a blockbuster. But yeah. when you finish in the top 25, it sounds like, hey, that did pretty well. Yeah, considering. <laughs> and by the way, last year's biggest hit was Bad Boys for Life, which also beat the pandemic. But that came out in January, so it had months. It reminded me to a certain extent, of course, Hoosiers, you already mentioned, a little bit of Glory Road, just in its scope and its style. But these are never the movies that ever seem to do great in the box office. Glory Road was basically a failure, but it didn't succeed all that much. Maybe it's just not flashy, right? Because it's a very narrowly focused story, basically on this one guy and to a certain extent the team he's coaching. But it's really just like a story about Jack Cunningham more than anything else. Well, both Glory Road and this movie are about the coaches, and so is Hoosiers. That's pretty balanced with the players, but it's more about the coach. So all three of them, I guess, are like that. Yeah, nothing spectacular about any of the movies. There's no huge Rudy moments, mm-hmm. thankfully. Affleck is, yeah, right, exactly. Affleck's not box office poison like he has been in the past no. because of the Justice League stuff. And of course, it was earlier this year when they released the Snyder Cut, which people really ripped about. I liked it more than the original movie. So I wouldn't say people didn't go last year in those two weeks or wouldn't have it been a normal year because Affleck was in it, which has probably been true about other movies he's been in. But we're talking about the quality of the action. We're talking about the scope and the story. Gavin O'Connor, the director, the third time we've covered one of his movies. All three Is have it? been good movies. Miracle, which I loved. My favorite of the three is done. Warrior, which I didn't Warrior, love. It's definitely okay. a good movie. Awesome. Very popular online. And now this film. We know we can shoot a sports movie, so there you go. The sports action, top notch. There's not a ton of it in this movie, but there's quite a bit. I saw this oh, a year and a half ago, I guess, not long after it came on demand. Yeah. And I liked it then, so I thought we should cover it. Because I remember the basketball being a part of the story, but it isn't really a basketball movie. It's obviously about one man trying to get himself healthy. And one of the best things about this movie is that, and you knew it couldn't be over because it was only about an hour and 20 minutes into the film, but when they win the game that gets into the playoffs and it's a freeze frame on Ben Affleck and it goes to black for a second, even though I knew the second time especially the movie wasn't over, you could feel like that's the way a lot of movies yeah. end. But no, because basketball, success, finding a purpose doesn't solve every problem when you have a serious addiction and a serious health issue like drinking too much. Because yep. it's supposed to be, I think, later that same day or the next day, very soon after at least, he finds out about their friend's kid. His cancer's back. That's what happened to his kid. His kid got to cancer. It's messed him up all this time since. He probably was a drinker anyway, but he went over the edge after that. And that's the real story because the basketball team, we don't really see them. I don't think we ever do see them play again. We see them at practice briefly. And we see they're about to play and they dedicate a game to him. One kid swearing as well. <laughs> this is for fucking Jack or something like that. But anyway, this movie's not really about basketball. And that whole fade to black, come back up on something bad happening and Jack really going over the edge is this movie in a nutshell. And I had the same reaction. Of course, like you said, this is the first time I watched it. Although I do remember you telling me about it when you first watched it. and mm. just how We have to do it one day, I think I said yeah, to you. Yeah, exactly. And I had the same reaction when it faded to black. I'm like, is that the end? Because it didn't feel like it had run enough. But it impressed me in the way that it had the conviction to end in the way it did. This is a much better movie, at least in my eyes, than many of the things we have watched, for two primary reasons. 
One, it's not a long movie. Like the runtime's about an hour forty minutes ish. Hour forty eight. Hour forty eight. But it flew by to me anyway. It felt mm-hmm. compact, well paced, well paced, and I cared. I cared about every emotional beat that the movie wanted me to feel, and I've lost count of the number of times that I've ranted to you about movies trying to get me to feel things in just cheap or undeserved ways. Ali didn't really make us care as much as he should have about Muhammad Ali. Great example. We cared, but not as much as we should have. A much, much longer movie, a movie that had too much source material to draw on and couldn't focus itself as a result, but this, for a movie that's an hour and three quarters, essentially... And a movie that has some complexity to it because it's all about Ben Affleck's character and he has a couple of different things going on in his life. And the movie, I thought, very effectively laid out this guy's history and traumas to the viewer in a way that was both surprising but effective and not overwrought either. Because when I first met the guy and we first experienced his alcoholism, functional alcoholism, I suppose, to a certain extent. He works every day. It doesn't look like he's calling in sick. No, exactly. I mean, he's clearly got issues, right? But yeah, he's holding down a job, if nothing else. Construction, like in Good Will Hunting. That's exactly. what Chucky's character was going to be. But Chucky was a happy guy. Also a big drinker. Yeah, that's true. Although maybe 20 years on, Chucky in that movie is Jack in this movie. I think he is. But then Chucky didn't have a trauma like his kid dying. And they handled that really smartly, too, because it's more than halfway through the film, I think, when yeah. you find out his son died of cancer. Obviously, we learn more as it goes along, but you only realize when he goes to see their friend's kid, think, oh, he knew Michael, meaning David, the kid, knew Michael. And then you realize, oh, that's what happened to his kid. Yeah, yeah, they visit the gravestone. This movie's not subtle, and I think some people would call it pretty cliched. But the way they handled that was smart. Those are two big things we like, or at least I liked right there. The way you find out why he's, well, I think he was a drinker before the kid died. But he's over the edge because of the kid dying of cancer, something he couldn't control. And that bit we just said about how it goes to black. And he's smiling, I think, for the only time in the movie at that point. But the movie's not over yet because we have to actually deal with the fact that this dude needs to get help. Yeah. His problems are not over yet just because they want a basketball game. I think it's implied that alcohol has been an escape for Jack through his entire life. You see that most clearly when he went to visit the friend's child in the hospital and he just turns around and leaves and he goes straight to the bar and then he gets blackout drunk. This guy just has no emotional capacity to deal with any kind of trauma. His recourse is he just blacks himself out. The first half of this movie, my assumption, just based on the information that was meted out to us, was that the alcoholism was a direct result of his breakup with his wife. We learn early on that he has an ex-wife that he's not on great terms with and she was contacting the sister or something. I love the way he plays the scene on the phone, too, when he calls her. Yeah. The night at his sister's place when he finds out from her that she tried to contact him. He calls her, yeah, it's the same number it was when we were married. And he doesn't overplay that he's mad at her. But you can tell this annoyance of, I have the same fucking phone number. Don't say you can't contact me. He didn't say that. A lot of movies, you'd have him literally say that. That's true. But you could sense the disappointment that his wife is not even paying that respect. That If you want to contact me, don't pretend you can't. I have to credit Ben Affleck in his performance. It's one of his best roles ever. He's publicly had some very... This is the Ben Affleck story. Yeah, this is... I, was gonna say, I wasn't sure quite how to put it mildly, but you're right. This is the Ben Affleck story. He's been in rehab more than once. So he knows of which he speaks when he's acting in this role, mm-hmm. and I think that really comes across well. And this is a moment that happens like five minutes into the movie. It's very early on, that conversation he's having at his sister's place, leaving a message for his ex-wife. And already we know that he's disconnected himself from his past life because we've already heard friends trying to contact him for a variety of reasons. We know that he's not in great terms with his wife because of the conversations that Jack has with his sister and their family. And then we have that moment, like you said, of irritation that Jack has that the ex-wife is going around his back to inquire about his well-being because his car is always being seen outside of the local watering hole. 
you have all this information and you already know that he's feeling one way, but it's almost undeserved or he shouldn't be feeling that way because he's actively avoiding people and he's drinking himself into a stupor every night. So you can both sympathize with Ben Affleck, but also sympathize with the ex-wife because I'm sure she's legitimately concerned about him. And then as the movie plays out, you kind of figure out exactly what happened in terms of the mm-hmm. son and things like that. I don't know if I ever got the sense that this was a terribly cliched moment, but that moment where he eventually does get up the guts to go with his ex-wife to the cemetery to visit the grave of their son, and he puts his hand on the gravestone and just says, I miss you, buddy, Mm. legitimately teared up at that. That was like a very effective moment for me, just because they didn't overplay their hand. I credit Ben Affleck to a really solid performance all around. Him weeping would be fine. But he can't cry. That's what the movie's showing us at the end. He finally does with the therapist. So maybe he never cried about the kid dying. I think that's part of it, yeah. the end of the movie. And I hope I didn't make it sound like the wife is being a shrew or a battle axe because she's not. Angelo seems like she was a good person. It takes two to fight. It takes two to divorce. But sometimes, well, often, if not always, one person's more responsible than the other one. And it looks like Jack is the bigger reason simply because he disconnected. And even more so because he probably did this, maybe not quite this much drinking with her, but probably an awful lot of drinking with her every single day. I don't know how people can physically do it because as much as I'll have like a consistent amount of drinks over the course of the week, you know, one or two beers with dinner or something. You know when to stop. Well, not just that. If I have more than a certain number of beers in a certain amount of time, I feel nauseous. Especially that kind of, it's like a fake movie prop. Yeah, Cutters, I think it is. Yeah, it's like a Budweiser or a Coors or Mm. something. And two or three of those, and I'll just be throwing up from feeling sick, not drunk. I can't take it anymore. So watching him slam back the number of beers he did. In one night. In one night. I felt it physically watching him do that. Especially when he was drinking in the shower. Man, you know mm-hmm. all kinds of water is splashing into that beer. He like drinks this. in the shower and every time he's in the... You see the shower scenes three or four times. is like Psycho. Well, yeah. there's one shower scene in that. But you see him in the shower multiple times and he's always drinking a beer each time. I don't think oh, I've ever taken a so bottle gross. of... Well, I usually have a mixed drink, so it's even worse. I don't think I've ever taken a drink into the shower with me. It's like Kramer preparing a salad while he bathed. Oh, God. Another homage it could be, though, is in Bull Durham, because when Costner has a bad day, after Robbins gets promoted and Costner is cheesed off, he knows his career is probably over now, he's drinking a beer in the shower because he argues with an umpire, gets thrown out. Maybe that's an homage in this movie. Well, let's talk about the numbers, the Rotten Tomatoes critics and audiences, the exact same percentage, 84. So, had this oh, movie played good. longer than two weeks last year, maybe it would have done okay in the end, it might have gotten word of mouth. 6.8 out of 10 was the average from the critics on the strength of 215 reviews. And Affleck got four or five different awards nominations, including the People's Choice Award for this performance. And as I said, one of the best ones he's ever done. We all know this guy's career. We know he's directed. He has two Oscars, one for writing, one for producing. He's never even been nominated for acting. I thought maybe he might have gotten nominated last year in this performance. It was a strong year for acting. Most years are, but last year was pretty Fair strong. Enough. But he's never done another sports movie, so I guess unless he does one in the future, we can't cover him. He technically was in Field of Dreams, but A, we've covered that, and B, he and Damon say they're extras at Fenway Park in the scene where Costner and James Earl Jones go to watch the Red Sox yeah. play. We never even managed to spot them in the crowd. Mm-hmm. If he would told me that he got nominated, at least, I would have said, yeah. And there was an element of physicality as well to the performance, and part of that is just that he's coming off being Batman for a couple of years where he bulked up for the role. And he looks huge in this. He also gained weight as in fat weight, not yeah. muscle weight. Yeah, he, so probably dropped the muscle weight and let it turn into fat. He reminds me of like a professional athlete or a bodybuilder that's now like a year or two retired. So they've still got most of the muscle they used to have, but they've added that layer of fat. So he just looks big and hulking. But at the same time, 
he doesn't carry himself in this movie shoulders back chest forward confident kind of strut he's Definitely always not. got the rolled forward defeated look to him I bet he was like that when he was younger too because he says to Brandon in the truck something about how my dad never liked me not just because of one thing that happened or he doesn't say maybe their mother died no their mother's alive she's always at the mother's still alive yeah, she's just always, the father right so it's nothing like that he only liked him because he played basketball well and he realized well if this is the only connection we have I'm not going to do it anymore Another thing we don't find out till towards the end of the movie, that he could have gone to Kansas on a scholarship. It wasn't Kansas's fault. It was just, I'm not going to go anywhere because I don't want to do this if this is the only connection that I have with this guy. And he doesn't say that. I don't think so in that scene with Brandon. But the implication is, well, then my dad really said to hell with you. It's never explicitly said what happened after he quit basketball. But I think you're right. That's the implication. Cold sever. He's done with his father at that point. And he must have been a drinker, I would think, through this time. And yet he met this wonderful woman, beautiful woman too, Angela. Janina Gabankar plays her. She was in the first two Barbershop movies, the biggest things I can see on her resume. I don't recognize her from anything else. I've seen her somewhere, but I've never seen those movies. I okay. recognized her, I just don't know from what. And she seems like an awesome wife, and what a catch. Yeah. But he must have gotten her in his life, and married her, and all the rest. And they look like they were happy in the few pictures we see when he was going through some kind of troubles, because I think he was always a troubled guy. This movie implies a few things pretty subtly and pretty effectively, mostly. I'm going to mention the one thing that didn't quite work for me, but... The relationship that Jack had with his father in this movie, it's a core element of why Jack has all this trouble. That's the seed of everything that happens, and then his son dying and the breakup with his wife exponentially exacerbated an existing inability to deal with emotional stuff. But when he's talking about his relationship with his dad, this is the only connection this man had with his father. He didn't want to be anything like him. But then later in the movie, when you see a couple of times, Jack gets blackout drunk and there's a local guy named Doc that brings him home mm-hmm. and carries him upstairs. And I think the last time that happens, Jack is muttering drunkenly to Doc saying, I want to see my moves. I got moves or something like that. My dad didn't have moves. And Doc, who clearly knew the guy's father, says, no, your dad didn't have any moves. I used to have to carry him up the stairs, whereas Jack was able to stumble up himself, right? So I think what they're trying to imply here is this is learned behavior. Jack's father was clearly a guy that also got blackout drunk and had no emotional connection to his son, except when basketball was a thing that could benefit his father, right? It wasn't because, oh, this is a love that we share. Jack says, oh, he didn't care about me. He didn't care about basketball. He cared about what the game could do for him Mm -hmm. through me. Okay, this is all learned behavior, and Jack just never had a role model to teach him any differently. How many movies have we watched where I said to you, where did it set this stuff up? Why am I supposed to care about this? And oftentimes just say, well, I think the director's shorthand is X, Y, and Z, and mm-hmm. you're supposed to pick up on it. And this is maybe one of the few examples I can think of of a movie that truly had an emotional message, an emotional core to it that we've watched. Where I'm like, yeah, I get it. This is, I think, very effectively laid out. It's hard for me to say I enjoyed it. It's not the subject matter that you say, oh, I enjoy watching this guy drink himself to death, but it affected me. Me too. Well, I said Gavin O'Connor directed it. He also did The Accountant with Ben Affleck, I think a couple years before this. So they had a shorthand, I guess. That was a pretty effective, weird movie. I didn't love it, but I get why some people did. The writer, Brad Inglesby, wrote Out of the Furnace, which is not a big hit movie, but that was Christian Bale. And he also created Mayor of Easttown. Yeah. So he's that had, big show from earlier this he's year. He's had a good year. Mm-hmm. And then O'Connor and Inglesby both produced it. And Jennifer Todd, who worked on Memento. So a good production team, good people behind the scenes. O'Connor's made three movies that I've liked for sure. I guess you probably agree. And we've covered those three. I guess that's it for sports films. He'll probably make another one, though, because he's only made maybe eight or so movies. hope he does. And about half of them are sports films. Yeah. And this movie never implies that this is based on a true story or anything like that. But do you know if there's... No, I thought maybe it was. Or based on a book or something. But no, it's an Inglesby original. Okay. The way that it's written, the way it's portrayed on screen, right down to those moments where you're following 
the school's progress as they're coming mm-hmm. around to Jack's way of coaching. You're seeing their results improve and you're seeing clips of each game followed by a score. That's a trick that we've seen, not quite exactly the same way, but similarly done in other movies like Glory Road, that usually indicates that this is recounting a real-life run that a team had, and it shows you all the individual scores from each game as their rankings improve. So I was wondering if it was real, but I'm slightly more impressed if it was pure fiction. Well, maybe Inglesby based it on some team in SoCal. Bishop Hayes is the name of the school that Ben's the coach of, the Catholic school, obviously. Maybe Inglesby looked at something in reality and based on that, but not literally in the sense of a former property, a book or something, or the Glory Road real-life story. I didn't do the nutshell yet. Oh, you didn't? Wow. How about that? How long do we go without showing you the nut? (laughs) There are times I've gone even longer than this. But it'll lead us into us talking about the basketball action in this movie. So in a nutshell, for The Way Back, and by the way, there's another movie called The Way Back, Peter Weir directed in 2010 with Ed Harris and I think Colin Farrell. And there's also The Way Way Back. (laughs) <laughs> so why they called that the same name? This movie was originally, or was going to be called The Has Been. Maybe I thought that was too harsh on Affleck. I don't know. The Has Been could have been that. <laughs> oh, the, ouch. I guess the shooting title was The Has Been. Anyway, for the nutshell. Wait, being around kids can make your life better? <laughs> ouch, right? <laughs> You're letting some of your own preconceived notes. Well, we are recording this the day after Halloween, the night I get to scare the living crap out of kids, which worked very well in our new house. We had a lot of good scares, and we had some friends come over and witness that. But as you and I probably made clear in our podcast, more than once... We're not kid people, you and I. I'm very happy that they went with the title they went with over the has-been because it would have been a very grim movie if it didn't end specifically the way it did. It would be a very dark movie. And then you could say, okay, maybe the has-been. But the fact that the whole movie is about Ben Affleck's character finding a way back out of the pit that he's dug himself. And at the same time, also the school and the boys on the team and things like that. They're also trying to find their way back. So what about the sports action then? You liked it? The nice thing about portraying something like high school sports versus the movies that we watch where they're supposed to be pros of some description is you can forgive them looking a little bit clumsy or not being great because they're kids, mm-hmm. right? So as much as it's meant to be, I thought it was pretty good. And like I said off the top, one of the things I at least respect about this movie is regardless of what the action actually looked like on screen, and I think it was fine, it's a movie that understood its sport and it understood... The rules. The rules. <laughs> Importantly, the rules... There was no moment in this movie where I'm watching something totally weird happen that would never happen in a real basketball game. Because when that happens in the movie, it just pulls me right out, right? Because mm-hmm. it just breaks the... The rookie reality. was terrible for that. Rookie of the year, I mean. We'll do the rookie next year. But rookie of the year knows nothing about baseball. No, I thought it was fine. What about you? Yeah, I thought it was good. Well, we know O'Connor can shoot action. We watched the actual hockey game that's based on the Miracle on Ice thing right. in 1980. You and I both watched it separately. We talked about that a lot in the Miracle podcast. And he got it pretty accurately. We have no frame of reference with Warrior because they're made-up characters and we don't know anything about, well, not much at least, about mixed martial arts. And this isn't based on anything specific either. But yes, O'Connor can shoot, especially amateurs, obviously, playing sports. And the guy who plays Brandon, the only thing he's really done that's sports-related is he was the voice of Pele in Pele, Birth of a Legend. He's the point guard who won't talk until he finally is bullied into it in a montage because it's a sports movie there has to be a montage I can't yeah. hear you Brandon I can't hear I'm way up on the rafters I can't hear you Brandon I agree you have to have a montage montage mm-hmm. in every movie but that was like a, a fun moment can you fucking hear me now yeah. I thought for sure you were going to get Ben Affleck proudly yelling down you're damn right I can mm-hmm. or something and give him a thumbs up and instead he just quietly I sure can, can <laughs> it was like a internally proud moment and he's not wrong because with 3,000 people in there If you're going to talk like this all the time, there's no way your teammates are going to hear you when they're 50 or 100 feet away from you. And that's the other thing the movie got right, too, is if you're the point guard on a team and you're the one responsible for calling the offense and setting up the plays, you've got to be heard. 
aside from the fact that Brandon is unquestionably the best player on the team. Jack tells him that, literally. It's true. You want your best player taking the important shot. Well, right? I don't know. There's some coaches that probably don't want to pick sides, especially with kids, and say you're the best. He only says it to him, not to the whole team. Yes, that's important. I don't think you go necessarily from the whole team. It's, ah, you're garbage, but Brandon's great. Well, when he changes the captaincy, I love the fact that the Sam guy, who doesn't really have much dialogue anyway, who had been the captain, not a very good player, but a leader, he didn't find out on the court right then and there the decision was made. He knew before because Jack says, I talked to Sam. But Sam right away is, I'll follow your lead. Love that little moment. You can't just unilaterally as the coach necessarily pick a captain and take it away from one kid, give it to the other, and hope that the team follows. There has to be an acceptance of the person being made captain out of respect. That's part of the whole thing with captaincy on teams. You should respect that person. Sam's very grown up then to be that cool about it. Very grown up. The nice thing about this movie, early on you see these kids... We're using the words kids. They're 15, 16, 16. <laughs> well, but we hear that they're getting offers for full rides to Kansas also. Brandon, so they're... They're still kids to me. <laughs> they're still kids. I mean, we're in their 40s now, but we're talking 17, 18-year-olds as opposed to 12-year-olds, for instance. Well, that's true. So when we see these kids early on, they're behaving like children, right? And mm-hmm. you've got the one guy that's heaving up three-pointers at a 21% success rate, and you've got the other guy that's calling himself white chocolate and wearing the bandana around his head and making it with every girl that Mm -hmm. will stop in a corner for 30 seconds. But he can shoot threes, and he's not getting the ball in to actually shoot it. Right, but he's also not putting up the effort on the defensive end and stuff like that. And chubs that won't stop dancing Mm -hmm. like they're winning the World Series, even or I should say the championship, despite being one and nine or whatever. The movie gives them all at least some characteristics, and they're behaving like children. In various ways, one by one, Jack is able to sort of get them to buy into the team, buy into a little bit of responsibility on the team, play for each other. Full court press. But again, similar messaging to what we saw in Glory Road and Hoosiers. You're playing for each other. If somebody wants to say, well, it's a little bit cliche that the underdogs are going to play together as a team real hard and beat the better teams. Sure, it's an underdog story and it's a cliche, but it worked and they did it well. The only element of this movie that I wish they had done a better job with was the thing about Brandon and his father. Mm -hmm. I think what the movie is trying to do here is trying to say, okay, look, Jack, you had this troubled relationship with your dad. This kid's got basically the same thing going on. He's got the same opportunity in front of him that you had being the full ride to Kansas on a basketball scholarship. I don't even know if we're told this explicitly, but I guess he's thinking maybe don't take it for some reason because Jack then eventually goes to speak with Brandon's father alone. Your son's really good. Why don't you ever come to games? He's got this scholarship offer, all this kind of stuff. The father has good reason, though, because he is taking care of two other kids. But then he says, I don't want my son doing nothing with basketball. I also... Right. He was screwed over by the system. So he says, but this is what failed me for this movie, was that Brandon's father apparently also got a basketball scholarship coming out of high school. That's what I mean. He was screwed over by the system. Russ is his name. But how? He got the basketball scholarship, but we don't really find out what happened to him then. He didn't say, but I bet it's something to do with race. Maybe, but the problem I had with that is if you're Brandon's father and you're working in this manual labor job trying to support Mm -hmm. three kids and family, I can appreciate him being pissed off at the world, but your son's got an opportunity to go to a top-tier university paid in full. Whether or not he becomes a pro basketball player after that, at least he's going to have a paid-for college education. True. So the fact that the father is like, nah, screw that, basketball can suck it because I didn't make it in life. I don't care what happens to my son. I'm like, eh, that doesn't really feel right. There has to be some rationale why you don't want your kid to go to university and get an education, at least. It was a very abrupt, non-rationale. Okay. So if you didn't love that aspect, did you love that he showed up with the sons? 
I did like Brandon that. sees them. You like that? Because that's yeah. the cliche. That's definitely a cliche. That's definitely a cliche, but it's still touching. This could have been a very grim and dark movie if you never had closure on that Brandon and his dad relationship arc. If you never had that moment at the end of the movie with Jack, where he's coming into a little bit of sense of, I guess we're meant to feel like he's okay with where everything is in his life now. He's come to accept everything that's happened. He sees hope. Look what he accomplished in a matter of months. And yeah, he got fired for good reason. He's drinking yeah. in the office and drinking on the job. And therefore, he's drinking around these kids. It's bad enough to be swearing around them. The Mark dude, I guess you call him a father. Chaplain. Yeah, and the credits, it says Father Mark Whalen. So, okay. okay, Chaplain. He lectures him more than once. It's a bit of a funny, not really a funny movie, but that's a bit of a funny recurring theme. <laughs> the bridge too far is to drink on the job, which he probably oh, always was doing. They show him drinking on the way home, the very beginning of the film, after a day's work. But then later on, we see him pouring booze into his, I guess, supposed to be coffee cup. Yeah. So then the suggestion would be that he drank on the job during the day all the time, too. But we didn't have evidence of that in the very beginning. Again, Goodwill Hunting. They're drinking beer when they're taking a break. Yeah. If you have a beer and a smoke while you're still working, not the end of the world. But I don't think I'd ever do something like that if I had a job like that. And all that dangerous stuff flying around you in any way influenced by alcohol. Seems like a bad idea. It's so sad, too, right? Because what I thought this movie was trying to tell us is that Jack clearly had a hell of a drinking problem when he's offered the position as coach for this school mm -hmm. for all the reasons you described we get all those scenes of him drinking in various ways his life's very full i like that line he no, has, was, he's practicing to talk to the well another father father divine yeah. my life's very full father and there's that montage of him just coming back and forth to the fridge cracking a beer mm -hmm. switching one into the freezer he crack. likes his beer cold because most of those would have been pretty cold by being in the fridge for a couple of hours well the colder something is the less you taste it so maybe that's why oh my understanding was he had that horrible drinking problem. He gets this job. At first, he didn't care all that much about it, but then he comes around to it. And then Al Madrigal's character, the assistant coach, mm -hmm. finds some empty cans in his office and sort of calls him out about it. We didn't really see much after that of Jack drinking, right? There's the scene of him pulling up to the bar and then driving away. And he seems to have cleaned up his act a little bit until he gets that recurring moment of trauma where he visits the friend's son in the hospital and then that just brings everything back to him. And then he mm. falls right off that wagon again. That's when we see him again pouring vodka into the coffee mug in his office. And he gets called out and fired. Yeah. Because that's also after they had clinched their playoff spot. Mm. They hadn't played the playoff game, but they clinched the spot. If that had been it, dear God, this would have been a grim movie. He's off the wagon. He's in the tank. There's like shenanigans that happen when he gets loaded at the bar with a random blonde afterwards. Drives into a boat, ends up in somebody else's house. There were some moments in this movie that struck me as both very dark and maybe unintentionally funny. That may have been a reference to Robert Downey Jr. because he woke up in somebody's house one time and I don't yeah. know if they beat him up. I don't think they did, but they must have called the cops on him. That could be. <laughs> God. There were some other lines in this movie, too, that I think Ben Affleck said that were very funny to me. One of them was the very full life kind of stuff. I'm like, oh, that's terribly sad because clearly not. And this is your lifeline. But that ending of the movie stuck with me because he has all that crap happen to him. Like you said, runs to the boat, ends up going into the wrong house, gets threatened with arrest, falls and down. And doesn't have sex that night. I know. That's, the, that's the biggest tragedy. She wasn't bad looking. It would have been fun. What I want to know is she bought him a drink. He slammed the first shot. Mm -hmm. I guess he's drinking for a while longer. She buys him a second one and the message is stop being a dick and come talk to me. Did he not turn around and say, thanks for the drink? I don't find think he it. did. <laughs> he just slammed it and yeah. kept drinking. <laughs> yeah. I'd be curious to at least find out who bought me the drink. Blonde in the corner, who's that? You know what's key as well is that we see him when he's at the bar with those guys. Not every time he's at the bar, but at least once when he's sitting down with guys he knows pretty well. And they're having fun and he's laughing. You don't see him laugh or have fun in almost any part of this movie. And obviously he was drunk, which is what he wants to be. 
And then he was having fun with her until he crashed into the boat and went in the wrong house. And he was going to have fun with her if he'd gone to the right place. So yeah. he knows the etiquette of drinking, which is, well, you can do what you want, I guess, in your life. If you want to drink alone and be poopy-faced the whole time, then go ahead. But he has fun sometimes, at least, when he gets too many in him, which is probably every day that he gets too many in him. Yeah, well, we're told it is because his ex saw this car in front of the bar every night or something. Right. We only ever see him get blackout drunk. We never see him have a beer and then... All right, guys, I'm out. Have a good night, right? It's always, he has to be dragged home. And you're going to have a few tonight at the most, and I'm not having any, so we're not quite as bad as Ben Affleck. <laughs> well, thankfully not. What do you think goes through your mind if you're the owner of that bar, right? Because he's effectively like a real-life Mo Sislak. That scene where Ben Affleck pulls up in the truck, thinks about it, and then pulls away from the bar without going in. He'll be back. Yeah, well, that's exactly what happened, right? He pulls up. The guy's throwing some garbage away, so he sees the truck pull up. He goes, hey, Jack, I'll get you set up inside, right? So this guy knows exactly what Jack's drinks are and stuff like that. Well, it's just a beer, so it's pretty easy. He mostly drinks beer through the whole movie. Seems to. Well, yeah, you write vodka sometimes as well. And yeah. yeah. He chugs a vodka before the Thanksgiving meal at the beginning of the film, doesn't he? He does. When you do drink whiskey, you drink it straight more often than not in a little shot glass kind of thing. I almost never do that. Scotch of the sipping thing. Okay, yeah, maybe scotch. It's not like a a slamming kind of... But regardless, that would fuck me up if I did that. It fucks him up, too, and that's the thing. Can you imagine, if you're the owner-operator of this bar, I know that it's like a customer relationship that he's got with this guy, but still, you get to know the guy. Do you not, at a certain point... Cut him off? At least cut him off, or at least have a conversation and say, like, man, you're getting carried out of here every night by Mm -hmm. Doc. I don't know how you approach it. If you're the bar owner, because frankly, maybe it's not your place to go up to somebody and say, you're drinking yourself into the grave, man. What's wrong? Do you need some help? I don't know. If I saw somebody every night get that drunk on my watch, that would mess with me. Well, maybe the bartender's not a good guy. Maybe that's the implication, He'd rather make too. the money, and he must be making a lot of money off Jack to drink that much every night. A pint of beer, I'm not sure what it costs in the States, must be, what, eight, ten bucks to get a pint of beer in a bar? Yeah. Well, a can of beer isn't as much, but if you were to get a couple of cans of beer, what's that cost? Even if it's good beer, a couple of bucks, maybe, in your case. And the only time we really see him drinking at home that way is leading into the scene where he's preparing his speech for the father to not do the, but we know he's going to do the job in the end anyway. There'd be no movie if he didn't. But basically, he drinks in that bar more often than he does at home. At least it looks that way. Well, he drinks everywhere he goes, but seems like he goes to the bar a lot. It's a lot of money. No wonder he has nothing at home. And I think you're right. Maybe he's just not a great guy, that bartender. But by the last time we see Ben Affleck get blackout drunk and get dragged home, that's hard to watch. Well, it's irresponsible on the bar's owner probably to always serve him. But then it's one of those things. It's legal, though. It's not like he's doing something yeah. illegal and the guy is... Well, then he'd be guilty, too, I guess, if he was part of that. Anyway, the guy dragging him home all the time, by the way, is Glenn Terman. So Glenn, not Glenn. And he was in Gremlins. He's the doctor they take the Gremlin to at school, and then it kills him. Is that him? Mm-hmm. And then he was oh. also Dr. Senator in season four of Fargo, which I think was last year, the okay. Chris Rock season. And then T.K. Carter plays, his name is Russ, Brandon's dad. We've seen him before because he was in Space Jam, although I don't remember who he was in that, but he was in it apparently. And if we ever can find Youngblood, the hockey movie with Patrick Swayze and Cam Reeves, <laughs> and he's also in The Thing. That's where I recognize him One of the from. few black guys that's in Antarctica in The yeah. Thing. So I've hinted at the ending of the movie a few times, and we never really touched on exactly what it was I wanted to talk about. It feels like this movie ends once in a very cliched way. But it's too soon. It can't be the ending. And then we get like another near 30 minutes of Ben Affleck's character just falling down the deepest pit of despair, losing his job with the school. I didn't expect that particular element of the story to come up for him to actually get fired from the team in a movie that feels like the whole crux of it is going to be how the team helps him 
rehabilitate himself. Right. So that caught me off guard. Well, look at the, what happens in real life. This is different, I know, but same basic idea, which is the team matters more than anything else. Look at the Jerry Sandusky thing. Why did Paterno let that go on? A, he was friends with the guy, and B, because it would have hurt the team. That's yeah. not a good enough reason, but that was his logic. Well, they're doing the opposite, these two guys. They're taking a stand with morals and saying, you can't be drinking around the kids. Because Jack didn't even really do anything wrong. He certainly wasn't hurting the kids the way that Jerry Sandusky was and raping them. But he wasn't actually hurting them in any obvious way. But even just doing the drinking in the office was enough. That's the cutoff point. There's zero tolerance here. Maybe a lot of schools do that in high school level in reality. But we keep on hearing these famous stories about why bad things happened. And it's because somebody let it happen because winning and money mm-hmm. as well, when you get to college and certainly again the pros, is more important than morals over and over. But not in this case. I think that's maybe why I didn't expect it is because it isn't what we so often see portrayed in the media anyway. So it is refreshing to see a moral stance be taken on something like this because, just like you said, Jack isn't actively hurting the children in any way, but it is also grossly irresponsible for him to be behaving the way he is when he's in a position of responsibility around children. So I appreciate where the school's coming from. Of course, he ends up in that accident with the bow, falling down the hill, ending up in rehab. We never get the cliched final game whether that's triumphantly or not, because we've seen movies that portray that final game both ways. We so, just see the little speech, and they're all rubbed up. They're it, about to go play. And then we hear the audio as Jack is getting a basketball and walking out to the outdoor court at the rehab clinic, I First suppose. time in decades, I guess. That's the thing, right? For a guy that we hear throughout the whole movie, what a great player he was. The best that people ever seen when he was a teenager in high school. A full ride to Kansas on a basketball scholarship. And they haven't made the playoffs since he was last playing. Well, not just that, though. We never see Jack hold a basketball through the entire no, movie. twice. He hands it to the referee. Okay, I should say we never see in Jack... In a playing sense. Play, in a playing sense, we never see him hold a basketball. I guess the implication of the movie is because he cut himself off from the game for these very personal reasons when he was a kid, and he's already said to Brandon he's made a lot of bad, self-destructive decisions that he regrets, even though he might regret them and recognize that they were self-destructive, he's never had that moment of peace where he's able to accept it and move on and i think that's what this movie's implying now that he's able to play the game again he's made peace with his past and mm-hmm. ideally that means his future is going to be okay and through that we hear the voiceover of a radio announcer it's a high school playoff game so i don't know who's announcing it but they're <laughs> they're basically saying jack cunningham couldn't be here but wherever he is he would have been proud of these kids and then it fades to black on him shooting hoops in the outdoor court <laughs> i'm sitting there watching this movie and then it fades out and i'm thinking i don't know what to feel about this In the one sense, I never got the closure that I've been kind of trained to expect from this kind of movie. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when I really sat down and thought about the beats of the last half hour of the movie and how it played out... It's the right ending. It's the right ending. It makes more sense. Anything else would have been really cliche. Mm -hmm. Like That would have been the disnified ending of this movie, as if he somehow got his job back, triumphed in the playoffs or something... So at first, I was slightly disappointed and felt like it didn't quite pull through. But, you know, on reflection, you had the courage of your story, the courage of portraying an ending that you felt fit the arc of the character. And I think it's right. And I was going to ask you if you felt the same way, but based on the comments you just made, I feel like you agree with me. The worst ending of the three sports movies that O'Connor's directed, even though it's my favorite of the three movies, Miracle, he has to base it on reality, granted. But part of that is the voiceover, where Kurt Russell's saying, more than anything else, a chance... To believe. <laughs> right? Because there's all about how oh, American need to pick itself up and then yeah. they play Dream Out in the end credits. So it's really laid on thick, even though they have to base it on the fact that this team that shouldn't have beat the Russians did. But I do love Miracle anyway. 
Warrior has that good ending with the two brothers finally reconciling. Yeah. And earlier they sort of reconciled with their father in some ways. That wasn't really a finished relationship. It doesn't have to be finished, I guess. And then the underdog wins because, what's his name? Joel Edgerton should not have been able to win, but he did. This does avoid the cliches, like you just said, more than Miracle does. So of the three movies, it's probably the best ending, actually. Well, Connor and Inglesby seem to know the movie is about Affleck, not the basketball team. So him finding some kind of peace and closure, and who can say for sure, just like Ben Affleck in reality, that he won't fall off the wagon again. There's always a chance you will. It is hard to stick with something like this, especially when you have a disease like alcoholism, and to this degree that he has it. So it has a nice ending, but he's not done. He knows that. The real Affleck does. The character knows that. But also having that scene with his wife where he says he failed her. Yeah, that was... That's a hard thing to admit to somebody. You failed them, especially when it comes to the most important relationship you've ever had. Well, maybe your kid, but the second most important relationship you ever had. And she's dating somebody else now, and he's mad about that. And I don't blame him for that, to be angry. But he knows that they didn't stay together because of him. He can admit to the therapist and cry in front of her that he misses his son and doesn't know how to handle the fact his son died. I don't know how I'd handle it. It does the thing it needs to do. It's not about basketball. We don't see the final game in hardball, and I think we agreed. We just covered that earlier this year, too. But showing them what the trophies is probably not a good idea. Keanu even says seconds before, you showed up. The most important thing in life is showing up. That's right. I don't need to know that they win. I wish you hadn't shown that in a way, even though I love hardball. To me, this is maybe the most poetic ending. Yeah. Partly because this isn't over. Nothing's ever over. Altman said it about how movies, or stories at least, don't end. We're just stopping here. That's why, at first, it struck me as so bizarre to see the movie end the way it did because it felt incomplete or unfinished but the character's not finished this is just the first step on his continued journey towards ideally sobriety Mm -hmm. and in some ways it felt a little bit weirdly enough like the ending of jerry Maguire for similar reasons right because we agreed at the end of that that oh these two people are together right now because they're forced to out of not a matter of convenience but like circumstances in their lives put them together and they forge this relationship but we can probably agree that in six months they might be broken up again, right? The kid's still between them. Cameron Crowe talks about that in the commentary. Yeah. That's a really key point, that even though it's a beautiful scene, and they seem like he said to her not long before, I love you and all that stuff, and he probably believes it, but does he really? Can she love enough for the two of them? Yeah. That's a very good ending in that way, just like the movie that he partly based on, Crowe did, The Apartment, Shut Up and Deal. Shirley MacLaine. She doesn't say I love you back to Jack Lemmon. She says Shut Up and Deal. These kinds of endings can seem like happy endings, and I'm not saying they're bad or unhappy endings, but they're more open-ended the more you think about them. The Apartment, Jerry Maguire, The Way Back, those kinds of endings are better. I think so. Not everything has to be true to reality or true to life, especially these kinds of movies, I suppose, but you get him on the path to redemption. You get him on the upswing. He's on The Way Back. He's on The Way Back, but there's no guarantees, nor should there be. So it was an unexpected but pleasant surprise of an ending, I think. What do you think of the two usually comedic actors in almost entirely serious roles in this movie? Al Madrigal playing Mm -hmm. Dan and Michaela Watkins playing the sister Beth. She's been in plenty of comedies and she's a funny actress. A Madrigal, Daily Show is what I know him best from. Yeah. But here they are playing characters that really don't have any humor in them at all. They're pretty good actors. I guess they proved that, that they can do drama like this. I thought they were both good. Madrigal had more screen time overall just because he's with Jack on the court all the time. Yeah, second build as well in the movie. He also had less emotional range, I suppose, in the movie than the sister character did. She turns up basically either in emotionally fraught family gatherings or when Jack's at his worst. So she gets the opportunity to really be sort of an emotional foil for him. But she did well. And he provided an even keel of sober reality to Jack throughout the movie, right? Al Madrigal did. He was just there to provide 
facts at first, but then he's the guy that's like, I saw the cans in your office, and Jack's sort of like, what are you doing in my office, blah, blah, blah. And the character's name Dan? Dan, yeah. Doesn't react. Don't let me catch you do it again. He leaves it at that, and then... He catches him doing it again. What I loved about that scene where Jack got fired, when the father comes in with Dan and says, listen, you've been caught again, we warned you, that's it, there's a no-tolerance policy... And Jack turns around to Dan and says, you go behind my back. You didn't even talk to me about it. And he's just like, I did talk to you about it. I told you about the cans mm-hmm. and you lied to me because you came and pissed drunk and stinking of alcohol. And said you overslept and you did, but that's not the reason you overslept. Yeah, you lied to me. It my wasn't face. an alarm. It was because you were loaded. Yeah. There was no argument. There was no heated exchange. It was just a statement of fact. I warned you. You lied to my face. You stink of booze. I'm done with you, man. And Dan's a good moral compass for these kids more exactly. than Jack had been because Jack as we've talked about swearing, does it a lot in the court. The father, who's with them all the time on the bus and everything, he's got a point. It's one thing to do it once in a while, but he swears a lot. There was a part of me that was like, yeah, these are kids. You shouldn't swear around them. But at the same time, we both know what sports are like. By the way, I say that as somebody who swears too much, but I don't do it in front of kids, I don't think, very often. Yeah, no, I, I try feel, not to. I feel the same way, obviously. But I am somebody that actively complains about how the English language is degrading over time. You're right. If I hadn't studied the history of literature in university, I probably wouldn't have quite the appreciation that I think I do now. But the beauty of the language is often lost and is sort of degrading over time, I think. But I am still somebody that is a deep believer in swearing. I think there's certain circumstances where it's absolutely called for. And sometimes if you're on the court and you're in the heat in the moment, you're really just going to convey a point and passion and emotion. And there's nothing wrong with dropping an F-bomb in there. You're right. Jack does it a lot in this movie. It may be too much. But I think there's a balance to be had there. Maybe that's what the movie's trying to convey, is that the chaplain, on the one hand, is saying, listen, we're trying to build young men of character. And I know he says faith, and I think we're on a similar page about what that might entail, practically speaking. But anyway, regardless of the religious message of the movie, he's on this one side of it. What I kind of liked was Jack's response to say, with all the shit going on in the world, Father, if there's somebody up top watching us all, you really think he cares whether or not I drop an F-bomb here or there? And the chaplain's response was, for reasons, blah, 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 you're damn right I think he cares. Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, you put it well. All right, I'll try. Try harder. Right? Right, yeah. Well, one of the arguments to be had there is that, yeah, we can't fix up your problem when it comes to finances or homelessness or something like this, morality. But you can literally stop being this way around kids, at least. Yeah. That's yeah. easy to fix. So is it a big deal in the grand scheme of the world? No, but this is fixable. Fixing homelessness is not necessarily going to be easy. Well, it's never going to be easy. But this is easy. Just stop doing it. And I do think there's also an argument to be made that as much as I am still a proponent of there are circumstances where swearing is absolutely warranted and might actually be effective. It's more effective if you don't do it all the time. If it only pops up in certain circumstances, then it has impact. Well, when he says damn, that is impact. When Dan says later on, I really want to fucking win this one or something like that. The only time he swears in the whole film. And when Brandon does, when he's mad at Jack, has impact. Just like the one kid at the end, let's win this for fucking Jack or whatever as he says. They all swear, I think, once each. But Jack does it plenty. So anyway. So as far as the depiction, we talked about that. We think it's pretty good, especially for kids. As far as scoring goes, well, Affleck could have scored if he hadn't driven into that boat and then more importantly went to the wrong place. Other than that, this is a very sexless movie with attractive people in it. That's a fair point. Affleck has been on the cover of People magazine as the sexiest man alive in the past, although he doesn't look as good in this movie deliberately. He's not supposed to, but he has been at that level. And as we said, the one who plays his wife, Janina Gavankar, is a lovely woman. So their kid must have been a handsome young man. I forget in the pictures if he was. 
I'll say seven and a half out of ten. Almost an eight. I'll go seven and a half. I'll be a little bit of a hair splitter. You're going to go higher than that, aren't you? I was going to go eight. All right. So you, almost, you're right. You get a little bit higher than me then. I thought it was a very effective movie, all in all. I'm like, glad you saw it then. Okay. I am very glad I saw it. Aside from that one nitpick I had about the relationship between Brandon and his dad, I struggle to think of any elements of this movie that didn't really work for me. It's too bad more people didn't know about it or see it, but pandemic. The last little piece of this movie I do got to mention before we wrap. You referenced this in your intro, too. One of the, I imagine, intentionally funny moments of this movie for me was when Ben Affleck asks Al Madrigal's character, what's the dress code these days? Yes. And he's told, a suit jacket and a tie for the coat. Which he wears. Which he does wear. But then track pants and sneakers. Yeah. But he goes into his apartment and opens up the closet. Part of the reason this amused me so much is because the last year and a half or whatever, I haven't gone into an office. I've mm. been working purely from home. So my wardrobe has narrowed itself down to like a few pairs of jeans t-shirts and some hoodies and he goes into his closet and all he finds are half a dozen different hoodies and some jeans and i'm like yeah that's familiar i get that <laughs> and then he opens up the box and pulls out i don't know what the suit jacket was meant to be from whether he had a prior career or that's like the jacket he got married Could in or be something his marriage jacket yeah. <laughs> dusts off this dusty old jacket and pulls it out oh that's cute and that's all we see him wear like you said that jacket and sneakers or something mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's yeah. good Consistently, I didn't realize at first he was wearing track pants, so they had a wide shot of him coaching. I thought, yeah. those are definitely track pants. <laughs> those are not formal pants. He's complying with the dress he code is. to the letter yep. of the law. He literally is. It's like when Charlie Sheen wears a tie and I think has no shirt on, though. He has a jacket of some kind, but oh, he's got an open Major shirt League. in Major League. Yeah. But he is wearing a tie. That's right. I look like an accountant in this or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, really. I think it's like a cut-off t-shirt or something, too. Okay, isn't it? yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that was The Way Back, also known as The Has Been or The Ben Affleck Story. In two weeks, we'll do the quirky thing, getting away from this movie, which is very serious, as we talk about wrestling again in The Peanut Butter Falcon, another movie you haven't seen yet. Yeah, this is going to be the month of new movies. We're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at ScoringAtMovies. Email address is ScoringAtTheMovies at gmail.com. Rate us, review us, subscribe, please. We always want more listeners. Who doesn't? We have 90 episodes. Anyway, do something you've never really done your whole fucking life, Jack, and take her fucking easy.